back to Lightshed Research, a podcast that puts our research notes in your ears for your convenience. January 5th, 2021, nine questions for Verizon's Q4 earnings call tomorrow morning. Ahead of Verizon's Q4 2020 earnings call tomorrow morning, we wanted to lay out nine questions investors should be asking management as we enter 2021. Number one, what is the three-year capital budget? We expect Verizon to be the leading buyer of Spectrum in the C-band Spectrum auction, adding 100 megahertz to its existing 133 MHz of sub-6 gigahertz Spectrum. We believe this could trigger a new multi-year capital investment cycle into Verizon's macro tower network. However, it's unclear if Verizon will fund this cycle by shifting CapEx from other priorities or through an increase in the overall budget over the next three years. Either strategy has meaningful implications. Over the past 10 years, the growth in Verizon's capital budget has been relatively stable at plus or minus 3%. Its last big investment cycle was at the end of 2013 and into early 2014, when it used AWS Spectrum to triple the depth of its LTE deployments. The use of fatter channel LTE networks delivered a noticeable uptick in Verizon's LTE speeds, which it branded as XLTE. Its CapEx rose 7% in 2014, and might have been even higher had some of that investment growth not been pulled into 2013. The drop in capital investment after 2015 was primarily driven by the sale of local assets to Frontier and then data centers to Equinix. However, we estimate a decline in capital investment would have occurred, even excluding the impact of these sales. 2016 began Verizon's pivot to millimeter wave and small cells, so some CapEx might have been shifted to operating agreements with third parties like Crown Castle and Extinet. More recently, Verizon has shifted its small cell investments to a higher mix of self-performing builds. The time and cost to deploy C-band is quite different than AWS Spectrum. Last year, Verizon deployed Dish's AWS Spectrum in a matter of days, utilizing existing antennas and benefiting from the ecosystem of handsets that already work on Dish's Spectrum. C-band will require new antennas, radios, and ultimately core network investments. 2021 CapEx guidance alone will offer few clues on the scale of C-band investment required by Verizon, as initial deployments will be limited. Investors should press management on how its capital investment will evolve over the next three years. It's also important to ask about vendor financing, which is not included in CapEx guidance. In 2020, vendor financing rose to $1.3 billion in the first nine months of the year, compared to $560 million in all of 2019. Number two, how many additional cell sites are needed to enable C-band spectrum? C-band spectrum is at the upper end of licensed mid-band spectrum in use by wireless operators in the United States. The low end of C-band is at 3.7 gigahertz, which is well above 2.2 gigahertz, the upper end of AWS spectrum. Numerous engineering papers and certain laws of physics indicate that the higher C-band will require increased cell density to enable equivalent network coverage to AWS, even after factoring in the benefits of massive MIMO antennas. Investors should ask management how many additional cell sites are required to replicate AWS coverage over 300 million pops. Here's some historical context. Clearwire is the owner of the deep spectrum position that drove T-Mobile's interest in buying Sprint. Ten years ago, the knock on that spectrum was the incremental cell density needed to enable it. Verizon was one of the most vocal detractors, claiming 2.5 GHz could not penetrate buildings. To be fair, Neville Ray of T-Mobile, and even certain executives at Sprint, 
like former CFO Joe Utenauer and head of strategy Tom Kelly, also spread doubt about the usability of Clearwire's 2.5 gigahertz spectrum. It's true that T-Mobile has more work ahead to build out a second 100 million pop network coverage of this spectrum band. However, their increased network density built over the past 10 years, new antenna technology, and HPUE have reduced the challenge on T-Mobile to execute on 2.5 gigahertz. It is not clear if the same is true for C-band. Investors should also ask Verizon for an update about whether they still believe that their, quote, macro build is largely done. As described by then-COO David Small in 2015, six months after Verizon announced it sold its towers to American Tower for $5 billion and the close of the AWS 3 auction. That statement foretold a slowdown in new lease activity on towers and a slowdown in capital investment, even after adjusting for the frontier sale. Number three, what is your plan for Legato? We believe that Verizon could materially reduce its densification needs if it paired the C-band with lower band uplink. Legato's L-band spectrum is ideally suited for this purpose, and we believe would accelerate and reduce the cost of C-band deployments. Aji Pai's final action as chairman of the FCC was to deny a request to stay its decision to authorize Legato networks to deploy a low-power terrestrial nationwide network. Would Verizon's view change if the cable spectrum bidding JV made a bid for Legato? Is debt leverage an issue for Verizon if the purchase can be formulated as a long-term lease? Number four, is subscriber growth necessary for revenue growth? The migration of postpaid subscribers to premium unlimited rate plans lifted Verizon's postpaid ARPU in 2019 and early 2020, before the negative impacts of COVID. Adding Disney Plus to the higher price bundles was an effective strategy to attracting existing customers to higher price plans, as well as recent iPhone, Galaxy promotions that require unlimited subscriptions. Disney's recently announced slate of new programming should ensure continued incentive for Verizon subscribers to migrate up, benefiting ARPA and revenue growth. If vaccinations are effective, ARPA could benefit in the second half of 2021 and into early 2022 from increased roaming and interest in unlimited plans. The tailwinds of plan migration and a post-COVID world reduced the pressure on Verizon to compete for subscriber market share in the near term. They have already shown to be less aggressive than their peers on the recent spike in smartphone subsidies, even though those investments would not pinch revenue growth. In our top 21 for 21, we predicted that Verizon would add the least number of phone subs in 2021, even trailing Comcast and Charter. We believe this is the obvious strategy for the market leader, but the management team should be asked if that is, in fact, their strategy. After all, in 22 and beyond, we have Verizon losing subscribers, which might make it difficult to sustain 2% growth in service revenue. Number five, how much additional content is needed in premium plans? You added a content bundling distribution deal with Discovery Plus on top of the Disney Triple Play bundle. What is the value add of incorporating Discovery Plus into Verizon's marketing messaging? Do you think Discovery Plus can reach similar levels as the upwards of 8 to 9 million homes that Verizon has discussed activating their Disney Plus subscription in late 2019? Is Verizon trying to build a new bundle of video? Should we expect additional distribution deals with coming SVOD launches such as Paramount Plus, or are Disney and Discovery now sufficient? How does Verizon think about the value add of bundling in streaming video versus the existing distribution partnership with Apple Music? 
will we ultimately see Verizon bundle in subscription services that go beyond video and music? Health fitness are good examples. Why or why not? Number six, more details on the new MVNO with Comcast and Charter. Verizon signed an updated MVNO agreement with Comcast and Charter in November. The cable operators subsequently formed a joint venture to bid in the C-band auction. We suspect they have been more aggressive than many initially anticipated, given the record-breaking $81 billion total auction value. Verizon management should address whether the new MVNO agreement improved the ability of cable operators to use the MVNO with an owned network. Verizon's first MVNO agreement with Comcast and Charter notably excluded key core network functionality. Comcast's Sam Schwartz complained about this deficiency during the Sprint T-Mobile trial. Many assume those issues were resolved in the latest MVNO, potentially enabling and encouraging a network build by these cable companies. It would be helpful to hear what incremental benefit Verizon secured in return, or more into the strategic consideration of incrementally enabling cable operators to succeed in wireless. Number seven, how many 5G home customers have signed up? Verizon launched 5G with great fanfare more than two years ago. It launched 5G Home, a home broadband service in Sacramento, and a mobile launch in Chicago. Both launches generated poor reviews based on the limitations of millimeter wave spectrum. We tested Chicago at the time. The technology is improving, and Verizon is plowing ahead with millimeter wave, but there still has been no update on how many paying 5G Home subscribers it has signed up. Home's past is in no way a measure of success, given the concerns about millimeter wave's capabilities. Investors should be pressing for actual subscriber, churn, and ARPU data at this point. 8. Has the strategy for TrackPhone changed post-COVID? The synergies of buying TrackPhone are obvious. Moving TrackPhone's traffic from AT&T and T-Mobile's network to Verizon should boost margins materially. It also jumpstarts Verizon's prepaid business, providing another revenue opportunity as postpaid subscriber growth slows. Verizon believes that an expansion of distribution for TrackPhone brands, particularly into big box, could boost its competitiveness in the prepaid market. However, many companies are rethinking distribution in a post-COVID world. An update from Verizon on their TrackPhone strategy would be helpful. Question 9. Can we get an update on smart city efforts? Following the AWS 3 Spectrum auction in 2015, Verizon's emphasis shifted to millimeter wave spectrum, fiber, and network densification. The pivot included a smart city strategy, which combined IoT with a plan to populate city assets with small cells. In 2016, it cut a deal with J.C. Deco to utilize its street furniture and acquired LQD and Sensity, two companies focused on the space. The conversion of city street lamps to LED lighting or bus stops to digital advertising was supposed to provide a massive opportunity to fund a network build-out and springboard an IoT strategy. Management even highlighted their smart city strategy and the lab performance of millimeter wave spectrum with elaborate displays at a subsequent sell-side investor meeting at its Basking Ridge campus. We haven't heard much about it since. This doesn't seem meaningful. Why ask now? Seeking an update on Verizon's smart city strategy could provide an indication of its investment focus on mid-band spectrum on macro towers rather than millimeter wave on small cells. It also follows Cisco's move at the end of 2020 to pull the plug on its own smart city efforts. Cisco's interest in smart cities, like Verizon's, dates back to 2016 when it brought Jasper Technologies for $1.4 billion. Here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal 
on December 28th of this past year. Smart cities are a hard sell, said Christopher Redeberger, a former director of Cisco, who has analyzed the economics of smart cities. The return on investment can be hard to quantify, he said, and stitching together disparate smart city technologies can appear daunting. Even basic things like public Wi-Fi have been difficult. Back to our note. Specifically, we would like to know how many JCDCO locations have been utilized by Verizon. We are also interested in how many LED lamp conversions Verizon has implemented over the past five years since the Sensity acquisition. Verizon might argue that new FCC rules under Chairman Pai that enabled easier access to city assets reduced the relevance of a smart city strategy. However, it's not clear how much Pi's efforts helped. In fact, Verizon and Crown Castle have complained about the increasing challenges that they have faced in key markets like New York City. There is also a risk of a rollback under a new administration, given the complaints by local municipalities. Thanks again for subscribing to our podcast. Feel free to hit us up with any recommendations. Look forward to having a great earnings season.